0: Micah Rowland isn't your everyday builder. He doesn't build homes, cabinets, or even software. As COO of Fountain, Micah builds people, teams, and processes. He offers a wealth of advice on building and scaling teams and the importance of documentation. But what we, what we talk about here isn't just applicable to building teams. It's applicable to anybody like you, building a business that will eventually scale up so uh, this conversation is great I I thought it was fantastic Um, Micah offers a lot of really good advice that um, I I personally haven't experienced yet because I haven't scaled up to a team or I'm just starting to scale a team now so uh, this is a really good one if you plan on hiring uh, contractors or you plan on hiring employees Um, but if you plan on scaling up Um, In any way, Micah's advice here is fantastic. And we'll get into that uh, in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Ahoy, the easiest way to increase customer engagement on your WordPress site. Install Ahoy, create a message box, configure where to display it, and start seeing conversions come in. You can create messages for card abandonment, upsells and cross-sells, custom support, and so much more. Ahoy's flexible conditions let you choose exactly where and when you want your message to be displayed. I've recently installed it on my own WooCommerce site, and I've already seen increased engagement. And I know this because of Ahoy's powerful analytics and reporting. You will see ROI within days of installing Ahoy, if not sooner. And that's even more true for listeners of how I built it. You can get an exclusive 20% discount on any plan. Visit useahoy.com slash howibuiltit and use the code howibuiltit at checkout. That's useahoy.com, U-S-E-A-H-O-Y, useahoy.com slash howibuiltit and the discount code howibuiltit. Use those today. Increase your engagement and sales on your WordPress site. Thanks to Ahoy for their support of this show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of How I Built It, the podcast that asks, how did you build that today? My guest is Micah Rowland. He is the COO of Fountain, which is some pretty interesting hiring software, as we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, And today we're going to be talking about uh, scaling to 300 employees and the lessons learned in, uh, in doing that. And I know that a lot of you listening out there are solo or small businesses, but you'd like to scale. Uh, so hopefully Micah can give us lots of great advice for that. Micah, thanks for joining me today.
1: Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So uh, let's start at the beginning uh, with uh, a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Absolutely. Well, at Fountain, I lead what we call broadly operations. That includes things like finance, HR, recruiting, legal. And at our company, it also includes customer success, which is helping our customers to use the software and learn to deliver value for their businesses. So that's what I do here. I've been with the company just shy of a year. In my prior professional situations, I started my career as a software engineer Then went back to graduate school for an MBA, spent time in management consulting at the firm McKinsey & Company, spent a little bit of time in consumer goods at Starbucks. And then about eight years ago, almost eight years ago, I came back to the Bay Area and back to technology where I've been in software as a service companies or SaaS companies since then in a variety of leadership roles. On the operations, customer success, and revenue generation side of the business—that is to say, not the technical side of the business.
0: Awesome, that's great. So you, so you moved from software engineering to a more business um, operation standpoint, which uh, which I think is really cool. I mean, as as software engineers, uh, software developers start their businesses, they might not think down that line. I know I didn't for a while, but as I am trying to work less in my business and more on my business. I know I need to put that hat on a little more often, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, so you have been at Fountain for um, a little, uh, just shy of a year, you said. Fountain is um, hiring software, but maybe you can uh, tell the audience a little bit more about, about um, what exactly it does and, and who you kind of target with this software.
1: Sure. Well, we target a wide array of different types of companies, but I would say the unifying factor in our customers is that most of them are hiring people in the hourly wage economy. They're maybe hiring contractors. They may be full-time employees, but they're non-exempt, and so they're paid hourly. And their hiring processes are typically going to be somewhat different than you might find in a Silicon Valley company, which is hiring software engineers or lawyers or marketers. In the case of most of our clients, they're hiring very large numbers of people. Oftentimes it's across many different locations and they want to do this with a smaller number of recruiters and recruiting staff than you might have to have if you were going to have everybody go through a very involved hiring process And so, our product offers a variety of features and tools that allow a high level of automation in the communication for these hiring processes. Secondly, they leverage mobile devices and they communicate using SMS messaging, which makes it more effective in reaching out to candidates. And then, thirdly, they provide a variety of tools that are integrated in with the service everything from video interview recording to background check, to the things that you might want to do with these folks after you hire them to get them onboarded and up and running, including some paperwork that you file with the government for things like the work opportunity tax credit. So all of that is integrated in so that you can actually, using a very small recruiting staff, process hundreds and, in some cases, even several thousand applicants a month with a single recruiter. So in that sense, we're really built for high volume and highly efficient hiring processes.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, that sounds like just generally interesting technology, right? Cause it's almost like you have uh, an HR representative in, in this software, right? Handling communications, paperwork, interviews, all sorts of stuff. So that's, um, that's really cool. And um it kind of uh lays the groundwork for uh your qualifications in in talking about scaling to 300 employees. So um let's let's kind of start at um the beginning. Let's say I have a team of 10 or 25 people and I want to scale. What's the first thing uh I need to think about as far as like okay, I need to scale my team. What's what's what should be on my mind?
1: I think the first thing you need to think about is where you're going to get the money to hire all those people. Mm-hmm. And in in our case, as is the case with many companies in our industry or our space, a lot of that funding comes from venture capital. And so that leads you to the second question, which is, how do I get people to give me this money before I actually have enough revenue to pay the salaries? So that that topic is one that is obviously widely discussed and is at the core of building a startup. But it really comes down to, do you have a business model that is going to allow you to bring people into the company and then to produce and keep revenue with those people that's going, to, that's going to pay for them over time so that you can hopefully be profitable or if you're not profitable today, become profitable.
0: Yeah, so that's actually a great distinction, right? Because if I'm growing slowly, if I'm bootstrapped, I'm likely not going to scale from 10% to 300 people in one shot, I'm going to scale from 10 to 12 people and then from 12 to 15 maybe. Um, so it's going to be a much slower build. But what we're talking about here is uh, I have something that I think can grow quickly. Um, I have the right business model. I think that you you um, hit the nail on the head there, of course. You need to have a good business model if people are going to give you money. And then you need to look for the funding to be able to pay those people. Uh, so what... Um, I know we're not really talking about venture capital here but it's something that that always interests me. Um maybe you can give us one or two uh pitfalls for for people who go for venture capital um and are not successful. Like do, is there something um that you've seen as as common or something that people often forget to include in their business plan when they're pitching venture capitalists?
1: Sure this this is a big topic so i'll focus my answer in on the industry or the types of businesses that i know best which are software as a service businesses mm-hmm. and in what in what we call saas businesses there are a couple of factors that vcs are going to look for that are really important in terms of how they influence your ability to grow and at a high level really what you're what you're trying to do is to balance the cost of acquiring customers with the revenue or the long-term benefit that those customers are going to bring to your company. In a traditional software business, what would happen is the company would develop software and they would put it on CDs or DVDs. They would put it into an environment where you could buy it and then you would come and write them a giant check. And once you write the check, everybody parts ways until the next time you need to buy some software. And in, in that environment, the company... Who was writing the software got all of the revenue that they needed in order to cover their costs in one fell swoop right up front. In the SaaS businesses that that I've worked in, it's a little bit different. In the SaaS businesses, what you're doing is you're creating a subscription. And so, in order to justify the revenue, for that subscription you have to you have to balance that revenue that's going to come in over time against the cost to acquire the customer and so SaaS businesses traditionally are spending a lot of money upfront on marketing and sales to get that customer to make a decision to sign a contract in order to to pay the monthly subscription fee or quarterly or annually however you structure it and so what VCs want to know is are you able to quickly make back the cost of acquiring new customers and then to keep those customers on your subscription long enough that you can bring in a lot of a lot of profit? And so that, that balance is a really important part. We think of it as CAC or customer acquisition costs. And then on the other side of the balancing equation is LTV, customer lifetime value. So if you're spending $20,000 to acquire a customer, and you're getting a $40,000 annual subscription, that would be two times your acquisition cost recouped in the first year after you acquire the customer. But of course, the timing for this cash is really important because if I spend $20,000 and I haven't collected any cash yet, I'd better have enough money to continue paying everybody in my company while I wait for the subscription fees to come in. And so... Timing of receipts and how long I keep the customer on board is really important. VCs are generally going to want to see that you can recoup the cost of acquiring customers within one year after you have that customer make a decision, and that you have a multiple of your lifetime value compared to your acquisition cost of at least three, hopefully more like five or even more. And so that really influences your ability to grow. If I have money in the bank, and I spend it all today on customer acquisition, how long do I have to wait until I recollect enough money to continue acquiring customers? That equation is really what's going to dictate not only your growth, but how appealing your business is to venture capitalists.
0: Well, wow, that's that was a, a really great explanation. Thank you for that. I think um, uh, maybe a uh, relatable analogy here is if we look at um, uh, uh, affiliate programs for hosting companies, right? Uh, I'm part of an affiliate program where I get 200 bucks if I refer a customer to this hosting company when they charge something like 39 dollars per month, right? So, um, if we look at the uh, you know annual, you know, where we're looking at more than 200 bucks, but it's still a big chunk of that change, and that's because they know the lifetime value of that customer is going to be at least three years. On average, people stay with their hosting company for a minimum of three years, if not longer. So the $200 bucks they are paying me up front to refer that customer knows that they're going to make um, quite a bit more, probably five or six times that over the course of the lifetime of that customer.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And they also know, I'm guessing, that they are not going to lose money on the deal because my guess is they have somebody coming in, sign a, an annual contract. So even if it takes them at 40 bucks a month, even if it takes them five months to recoup the cost they paid you, $200, they know that very few of those folks are going to go away before they hit that five-month period. And so that indicates the value of having a a contract to lock people in so that they continue paying. And furthermore, that company, if they're signing annual contracts, they know they're going to get about $480 over the course of 12 months. So when they hit that 12-month mark, they're going to have $280 worth of profit compared to the acquisition cost that they paid you. Obviously, they may have other acquisition costs, but that simple math indicates why that's a good good idea for that company. After five months, they've recouped enough money that they can then pay you perhaps another $200 to go acquire another customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas, let's say they were only charging $10 a month, they would have to wait 20 months in order to have recouped the upfront cost. And so you can see how that that balance is directly related to the speed with which you can grow the business.
0: This episode is brought to you by Pantheon, starting a new project, looking for a better hosting platform. Pantheon is an integrated set of tools to build, launch and run websites. Get high performance hosting for your WordPress sites, plus a comprehensive toolkit to supercharge your team and help you launch faster. On Pantheon, you get expert support from real developers, best-in-class security, and the most innovative technology to host and manage your websites. You can sign up a new site in minutes with a free account you only pay when it goes live. That is my second favorite feature to Pantheon, only to the easy ability to create dev staging and live servers and push to GitHub. It's very easy to set those things up on Pantheon. So you can head over to pantheon.io today, again, to set up a free account. Pay only when it goes live. Thanks so much to Pantheon for their support of this episode and this season of How I Built It. So let's say we have our um, we have our good business plan. We've talked to um, a few venture capitalists, and and they've agreed to give us some money. What do we do next? Like, w- like, what do we do next when we're ready to scale? Do we say, "All right, I'm hiring 300 engineers"? Or uh, I assume there's probably a better process in place than that we should um, that we should consider. <laughs> sure,
1: I, I think different companies will, of course, want to hire a variety of people for different roles. But high level, I usually put put staff. That is to say, employees that you might hire, whether they're W-2 employees or contract employees, I I bucket them into one of three categories. And those are R&D in a technology business. That's really important. But R&D is not generally going to be bringing in new revenue directly. Secondly is people who you might think of as being directly related to or responsible for the generation or the sustenance of revenue. And then thirdly is what you might call broadly GNA or overhead, people who are necessary to run the business, but that number of people is not going to change how much revenue you bring in or how easy it is to retain that revenue. So if you've got a bunch of money in the bank that you've just raised, whether from venture capital or from debt or from some other source, the first question is, how am I going to, to spend that money on headcount and other things. Now, for most businesses, hiring and retaining staff is going to be the single biggest line item in their in their in their income statement. Uh, that isn't true always, but uh, people are generally going to be the highest expense line item in a software business, for instance. And so, if you're building a software business and you're thinking about how to how to grow and how to scale, it's about distributing the dollars that you have across those three high-level categories. I might want to spend to hire more marketing and sales staff, which is going to grow my business over time, and that's always something that's important. I might want to spend to hire more customer success and support staff, which is going to be necessary to ensure that I keep the customers that I've got. This is particularly important in a subscription business like the ones that I work in, although one might argue that it was less important in traditional software businesses because To revisit our earlier example, if you came into the mall and you paid me $500 for a box with CDs in it, then I've already got your money. Even if the Mm -hmm. software turns out to be bad, I don't have to go collecting a subscription. I do have to think about selling you more CDs two or three years down the road when you're in the market again. Um, And so then on the overhead side, you've got to have people to do things like pay, uh, pay your payroll, Uh, handle facilities and do all of the other things that make a business tick, as well as, again, R&D to move the business forward. So it's really about understanding what balance of those three things is necessary in order to grow the business short term. That's generally going to be sales, marketing, customer success. Secondly, make sure that you're not mortgaging your business for the long term by continuing to invest in R&D, which is something that's always important for tech companies. And thirdly, make sure that you can kind of keep the lights on with G&A or overhead.
0: Do you find that uh, people generally uh, overhire one type of um, employee or underhire? You know, like I, I feel like at least in the WordPress space, um, uh, until recently, there hasn't been a a big focus on customer success. Uh, you know, it's it's we want to get as much as many dollars in the door. Uh, So I'm going to hire the the developer. I'm going to hire the salesperson. Customer success can come later when we're making money.
1: Right. I think it's very very challenging to understand in a business before you have a lot of history, before you have a lot of repetitions of the customer lifecycle. It's very difficult to understand what is the service model that's going to allow us to keep these customers on at a certain rate, right? So if I say, hey... Joe, that guy you referred to your hosting company, they pay you 200 bucks. How long is he going to be paying the subscription fees? Well, if you just started the hosting company, it's very difficult to have a, a an answer that you're confident about. And if I further ask you, Joe, how many support staff do you need in order in order to ensure that that guy is going to stay on your platform and pay your hosting fees for at least 3 years? an even more difficult question to answer. And so I think the difficulty of answering that question is one that can certainly be resolved over time. You don't always want to wait until you have the answers. And so companies tend to try and invest into staff to solve problems that they see coming up and infer from customer decisions that happen at every stage, what future customers are likely to do. So I think customer success and support is one area where it can often be difficult. And I think the tendencies of companies is that they may underhire there because those functions are often seen as more of a, a cost center than they are a direct revenue driver. And because the default for a customer is we're going to keep billing them. And so it can be the default for the business to assume that you don't need customer sex success to keep them on. I, I think that that perspective has been shifting over the last few years as customer success as a discipline has become more mature and more well understood and their regular understandings around metrics that you need to drive and and measure. But it is still a challenge, largely because the value for money equation that every company is looking to balance properly, which is to say, you're paying me money every month. And what I expect in exchange for that is value. That's a very intangible thing. And because value is sort of different for every customer, it can be difficult for companies to balance it correctly. Uh, So I, I used to always when I was talking through and explaining this, uh, this balance and how we thought about it in a previous role where we were onboarding lots of employees, I would say that value for money equation can be explained uh, around some simple examples that we might all understand. So if I ask you, Joe, what kind of car do you drive? I drive a Ford Fusion. Okay. So Ford Fusion. And I said, okay, Joe, you're paying me a monthly fee for your Ford Fusion. Let's say it's 300 bucks a month. And if, if I ask, um, Joe, I want you to pay $350 a month instead. The first thing that you're going to ask me is, well, what else am I going to get? Right? Mm-hmm. And I might say, well, I will give you roof racks for your bike and I'll give you a sunroof and I'll give you four wheel tribe. And you might say, that sounds like a great deal. Sign me up. And we'd make those modifications and then you'd be going about your day. But if I said... Uh, those things and you say, well, I don't ski and I don't care about a sunroof and I don't live in a snowy place, so I don't need four wheel drive, then maybe those features wouldn't be worth an extra 50 bucks a month for you. And so in the software business, what we have to do if we're selling subscriptions is to balance this complex value for money equation. And that's a real challenge. It's different for every business and it's much more complex than getting somebody to make the decision to sign up for the the subscription in the first place. So customer success, I think, is one challenging area where businesses often don't get it right immediately and have to work towards an answer. The other that I think is really, really challenging is is in the product and engineering side of the house, because there you're always looking to optimize for something that is pretty far in the future, at least in the world of startups, which is what do we need to build and how do we need to maintain it over the future to Enable continued growth, not just the growth that we're going to get right now with the feature set and the software that we've got today. And that involves a different sort of prediction around understanding what the market that you have today might value in the future and what the customers that you haven't yet acquired but are hoping to acquire in the future will need in order for you to get them to pay you subscription services. So I'd say that in some regards, that's an even more challenging exercise to go through. And so in most in most cases, companies are kind of taking a leap of faith in order to decide how many engineers or how many product managers or how many other staff on that side of the r and d portion of the business they're going to hire
0: yeah wow that there's a, so there's a lot of information to unpack there right and I feel like uh, I feel like you're talking to me right now directly because I just launched my own subscription service in the form of memberships for my online courses uh, and I you know the content I have now is enough to get people in the door but a year from now I bill annually a year from now have I added enough uh enough extra content for them to be like yeah this is worth it for another year um or what content do I need to add to get new people in the door like you said um it's a a smaller operation for me at least right now but uh it's definitely something that's that's been top of my mind since launching memberships um yeah. so so uh, let's let's go with a more concrete example. Uh, since um, you you've learned these lessons scaling to three hundred employees, um, and and uh, you you've done this yourself, can can you talk about uh, a specific instance of um, when you had to do this, and kind of the things that you uh, the things that you did, maybe the things that you feel like you could have done better? Uh, you don't have to name the company if you can't, of course, but um, just kind of speaking. Uh, from your own personal experience?
1: Sure. I will say that most of the companies that I've worked at in the last eight years in the startup scene have been smaller than 300. One of the companies that I was at, which I'm happy to name, Five Stars, basically did go from about, I think, probably 125 when I joined to over 300 at, at its largest while I was there. And um, the other companies that I've been at have have been on various stages of that journey. Fountain, for instance, is closer to the beginning of the journey. We're about 60 people right now. We've grown substantially since I joined and will continue to do so. But what I will say is I've noticed a few distinctive and, I think, challenging points for companies that are growing, and the one that I think is is the most difficult is when you get to around 150 employees. So there's a number that I believe is called Dunbar's number that Mm -hmm. scientists have determined links to the number of relationships that humans can kind of hold in their brains and process. And so I don't know if it really links to Dunbar's number, but what I've seen at a couple companies that I've been at that have gone to something approaching that size of 150 is that it becomes much more difficult to get anything done. And I think the reason for that is by that point, you have a lot of different jobs that need to be done and in the early days of a startup when we, when when there are very few people around basically the way that you get anything done is you have somebody go go get it done and they roll up their sleeves and they do whatever needs to be done they do a little bit of marketing they do a little bit of selling maybe they do a little bit of coding and that mindset can propel you forward as a company for an awfully long time but by the time you get to 100, 150, 200 people, you have to have people who are very good at doing a very specific job, a narrow slice of those tasks. And you have to have people focused on those tasks because if they don't focus, they're not going to do things well. And so if you're going to do something like, say, change the pricing at a company, you actually can't just get that done by rolling up your sleeves and handling everything that needs to be changed. Because If you're going to change your pricing in a software company, you have to change the way that you sell it. You have to change the way that you market. You have to change the way that you bill your customers. You have to change the way that you service those customers. You have to change the way that you account for everything in the back end and finance. And so that process is a very inherently cross-functionally one at that time. And it also becomes a, a process that needs to be built into projects and project management. And so that's, I think, a key challenge for companies that are scaling. What got you to this stage successfully actually is not going to get you any further. And furthermore, the people who have built the company through their blood, sweat, and tears to that point, they oftentimes don't like the things that are going to help you be successful in the next stage. They don't like lots of meetings. They don't like going in a room and asking these six colleagues to take these very specific steps to get to the next meeting when we get together next week or tomorrow, because that feels, to many startup employees, like mindless, needless bureaucracy. And so they tend to not want to engage with those types of working, ways of working. So I think that's a key a key point. Some companies hit it sooner than others, but really it's about when do you shift from a way of working where individual contributors in your company can handle most of the stuff that needs to be done or small teams can handle most of the stuff that needs to be done. Because I say to my marketing team, hey, figure out how to reach these new customers. Or I say to my engineering team, hey, figure out how to build this new feature. And you shift to a way of working that really involves coordinating the activities of multiple teams and departments across very mutually interdependent processes that are going to take time. So I'd say that is probably one of the biggest challenging places that startups run into trouble because people don't like working that way. They don't like shifting to that new way of thinking. They'd much rather stay in their lane and get things done and not have to wait for that annoying coworker who always seems to be more more slow in delivering for you than you need to. that's because he has a specific job to do that doesn't necessarily involve getting your inter interfunctional or cross-functional task complete,
0: yeah, absolutely. and I, and I love what you said about. I mean, the many founders don't like that generally, right? I'm sure probably a lot of people leave their big corporate jobs to start startups because they like to move fast and and they don't necessarily like the bureaucracy. you know when I was um, at one of the larger organizations I worked for, I felt like I was always in meetings. And then when my boss was like, how come this isn't done? I would say, I've been in meetings. I've been in meetings all day. Uh, I, I have no time to get things done. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really great point. But as you scale, you're right. I mean, just you want to make sure people aren't doing the jobs that other people are doing too. You know, if if I have multiple people trying to do the same thing, I want to make sure that they're talking to each other and coordinating and they're not redoing each other's work and stuff like that. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Gusto. Now, small business owners wear a lot of hats. I know I am one of them. And while some hats are great, like doing this podcast and getting to talk to people, others, like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, are not so great. And that's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes, so you don't have to worry about it. And as a New Yorker subplanted to Pennsylvania, uh, the not paying my local taxes thing bit me a couple of times. So it would be it would have been great to have Gusto then. Uh, Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits or even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can get direct access to certified HR experts, too. This sounds like a pretty good way to kick off 2020 for your business, right? Uh, But here's the thing. Deadlines for the new year creep up earlier than you think, and you're going to want to get started now. I don't know about you, but I know that I've started thinking about this stuff around this time. And all of a sudden, February or March is here. And I'm like, I need to do something about my taxes. So don't wait. Let Gusto make it easier on you. As a bonus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. I certainly am. Uh, and you can try a bonus and see it for yourself over at Gusto.com slash build. So get three months free when you run your first payroll. Try a demo and see it for yourself over at gusto.com build. Thanks so much to Gusto for their support of this show. As we approach the end here, there's, there's another question I want to ask you as far as um, obtaining new employees or acquiring new employees. Uh, and that's with onboarding, right? If, uh, if it's me and I hire one person to do something that I was doing I can sit down with them or I can record a video and say, this is the thing I was doing and this is how I was doing it and now this is how I want you to do it. But when you're scaling um, upwards of 100 employees, um, how do you come up with a good process for onboarding and making sure your employees are on the same page and they know uh, what they need to do and then they know who to go to when it's something that they can't necessarily do?
1: Right. I think this is something that it's very easy to overlook in a startup. And the reason it's easy to overlook is the first few people who are doing a job have generally had a long time to learn how to do it well. And 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 they've been figuring things out. And that process of learning for oneself is is probably the best way to learn in depth all the ins and outs of a job but that's not what you want somebody who is the eighth person to do that job mm. to go through you want to actually help them to move through that process much more quickly because it's more efficient for the business it's less frustrating for them but by the time you get to there that that eighth person it isn't always the case that the business has built a very robust set of training materials and training processes. And it isn't necessarily the case that the person who is responsible for leading that little operation, whatever it is, is naturally good at training and onboarding. Because teaching and coaching... For a specific job skill is something that some managers are naturally quite good at and and others, it isn't their strength. They're better at other parts of the management equation. And so I think the right way for businesses to be cognizant of this is to make sure that they are able to help their employees, especially those employees who are in a managerial role, invest time in documentation and invest time in building assets that those employees can refer to as they're going through the learning process and a structure for the things that they need to learn. So I think the, the, the parts of the business that generally get this right the most effectively and the earliest are sales especially and, and marketing with specifically with respect to what we often call sales development because those employees need to learn a very specific set of content in order to be effective putting that content to work in their job, which is to bring in new revenue. Um, and so uh, those processes are also generally very well understood. Every sales cycle is not the same, but if you can sell to enterprises, you understand all the skills. All, all you need to do is you need to be able to understand the value proposition for that product. Um, but you'll never find a sales organization that asks somebody to join the company and does so successfully without a really robust, well-developed set of documents and a process and a, a timeline for them to acquire the knowledge that they need to sell. And so I don't see why other organizations within a company would ask the same thing of employees without, ge- without giving them the same assets, right? Um, and it's arguable that the assets need to be even better developed in other organizations because customer success is a discipline that is, that is newer than sales. And so it's it's arguable that there's, there's more that is bespoke or unique about a given business uh, than there is in sales. Um, so I think making sure that you give your individual contributors and the managers who are charged with overseeing them and incorporating them into the business ample time and assets in order to in order to execute on that training program is really important. I've always found that the best way to build a training program is to have people who are doing that role build the program and you've got to give them time to do that. So if they have enough work that it accounts for 40-hour work week, You've got to find some way to take some of that work off of their plates, so that they can take time to document things and to think through what an effective training program will be. Uh, for for myself, in a role that is a couple levels or layers removed from that frontline work doing, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to tell you what a what a structured process mm-hmm. to onboard a new customer success agent or a new engineer or a new product manager might look like. Uh, the people who are on the front lines doing that work are generally going to be those that have the best sense for what might be effective. And so the manager has to be able to put those folks to work in a way that is going to get that information out of their brains into a structured set of documents and a process that can be used to bring new people into the business effectively.
0: Yeah, that that's fantastic advice. Um, you know, even though like as a software developer, we not we might not like to hear the word documentation, that's like the least fun part of the job, but um, you you want to future-proof your project and your business uh, against, you know, you don't want to be the only person that knows how to do a particular job, right? Whether you're the founder, um, if, you, if you want to start working on your business, you need to document the things that you're doing for your next employee. Uh, if you are the manager, then the value proposition for the manager, right, is if uh, if Joe leaves one day and he's not documenting what he's doing, now whoever replaces Joe has to start at square one or somewhere close to square one because Joe didn't do a good job of documenting what he was doing, and nobody made him.
1: Yeah, I think a big pitfall of this, of building these processes, is the the fallacy, the thought fallacy that I can get people in a room and tell them what to do, and that they'll remember all of that. Mm-hmm. And retention on verbal communication is I think, relatively low. And so what is more important is that I share with people broad outlines for what their first month or however long the onboarding period is going to be like. And then I can give them documents that will show them the structure of the way the timeline is going to be broken down and the different content modules that they're going to have to be able to absorb and the work contexts they're going to need to be able to put those pieces of knowledge to use in and then give them enough reference material that as they're starting to do the job in the introductory phases they have something to draw on and some place to go to in order to get questions asked or questions answered that they may may not be able to answer themselves so it's it's very easy for me as a as a a work manager to think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna onboard them. I'm gonna go talk to them a bunch, but that is not a good way of onboarding somebody. Companies have to invest the time and resources to build processes, documentation, and also to build structured relationships with coworkers so that they know who the right person to go to in order to get answers. If if they're in that process and the reference material they have doesn't have what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point, right? I think it's something like verbal communication has about a 10% or maybe it's like a 20% retention rate. Doing something is a 95% retention rate. I know these yeah. numbers because I used to give a talk a bunch about this. Um, but uh, on top of that, like you said, you do need to tell your employees like, hey, these are the people you should talk to and encourage them to. In my first job, I was afraid to ask my coworkers questions. Cause I didn't want to make it seem like I didn't know what I was doing by the time I got to my, uh, the most recent job I had before I left and and became self-employed. I would try, you know, I would spin my wheels for an hour at best before, um, asking a, a coworker, Hey, how do I do this? Because time was literally money in that company. I worked for an agency. And so, um, You know, encouraging employees to say, hey, you should be able to go to your coworkers and ask questions and uh, help you, they can help you learn the job better. I think that's really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. So we are at, um, we are just about at the end here. And so I need to ask you my favorite question, uh, which is, do you have any trade secrets for us?
1: Uh, Trade secrets. Uh, I think my main trade secret is, always rely on people who are closest to the work that's getting done. If you want to understand how to do it well, how to do it better, how to improve it, or how to change it. It's very, very easy for me because I, like most people out there, I think of myself as a hard worker. And I probably think of myself as a reasonably smart guy to think that I know the answer to a problem that I might, might arise. But Usually, that's not the case. Usually, I need to be actually relying upon people in the teams that I'm charged with leading, in order to get a deeper understanding of the problem, propose a potential solution, and help work through that solution and implement it. So, it's it's very easy to fall into this fall into this fallacy and believe that I know what needs to be done and I can tell somebody what needs to be done, but actually. That is usually a recipe for disaster because the longer I've been in leadership roles, the less I've been asked to do some of this work myself, and therefore the more I need to rely on people who actually know what they're doing. So that's my number one trade secret: is is uh, don't fall into the thought fallacy as a as a leader or a manager that you know how to get something done. Rely on your team, and they will. Uh, if you put them in an environment where they can be successful and you let them know your expectations, they will be people who can bring you forward to the best outcome.
0: I love that. That's fantastic advice. I've always said um of managers, like if your employees look good, you look good. Uh, I think that's something that um, is is hard for people to learn. But um you know if you're helping your employees and you're relying on them, I think that's really cool. Uh, I'm going to share one story I learned about the Walt Disney Company, one of my favorite companies to tap the well on. Um, specifically at Walt Disney World, they have a very efficient process for their laundry. Uh, they have three sets of laundry for every room on property, the ones that are on the bed, the clean ones that are in route to be put on the bed, and the ones that are dirty. Your process can't break down because there's no wiggle room. Uh, to improve their process, they actually talked to the people. On the factory floor, moving the sheets around, and things like that, and one of the things they learned was that uh the one of the hooks that they were using to grab the clean sheets was too sharp and it was ripping sheets and uh, they learned that from people who were on the floor and they were able to uh like reduce costs by something like fifteen or twenty percent uh just by listening to their employees and replacing the hook to one that wouldn't rip the sheets so um That is a point that hopefully drives home what you were saying. Always rely on the people who are closest to the work that's getting done.
1: Absolutely. I love it.
0: So Awesome. Well, Micah, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Where can people find you?
1: Sure. The easiest place to find me is probably on LinkedIn. You can find Fountain on LinkedIn, and you can find my profile there. If you happen to look me up and want to connect, feel free to do so. Please make sure in your connection request that you mention this podcast because I get a lot of invites that come from folks that I haven't met and I try not to accept all of them unless I have some context.
0: Fantastic. I will link to both Micah and Fountain uh, in the show notes for this, uh, for this episode, which can be found over at How HowIBuilt.it. I'll include a lot more. Uh, reasonable stuff in the show notes as well. So Micah, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Cheers. Thanks, Joe. Great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much to Micah for joining me today. Uh, His advice about maintaining relationships, like he talks about Dunbar's number, um, how to measure customer success and support, uh, how we should invest Time in documentation uh, and assets that employees can reference. I mean, that's such a big one. Um, I know from from my previous experience uh, working at other companies, uh, that was um, a lot of time that seemed wasted. Right. That um, I was taking man hours um, from another employee for them to train me on something, even though later I would just have to bother them again. Right. So investing time in documentation uh, and I absolutely loved his trade secret. Always rely on the people who are closest to the work that's getting done. Uh, we see that in extremely successful companies, right? Um, Walt Disney World, for example, uh, talks to their employees on on the front lines on how they can improve their processes. So just, just fantastic advice all around from Micah. Uh, so definitely be sure to check him out. Check him out. Uh, as well as our sponsors. So thank you to our sponsors, Ahoy, Pantheon, and Gusto. You can learn more about them and everything we've talked about over at the show notes for this episode uh, over at howibuilt.it slash 142. Now, I've been doing podcasting for a long time. And if uh, if you want to start a podcast, right? We're getting towards the end of the year. January is a great time to start new projects, new year, new you, new projects, stuff like that. Um, I am currently working on a course called Podcast Liftoff, where I take you through the whole process of determining a topic and a format, uh, determining the right equipment and the process for recording, uh, and then how to record and launch your show. So uh, if you are interested in that course, there's a little preview over at howibuilt.it slash liftoff where you can download a workbook to help you answer some of those initial questions. The course is coming soon, uh, but uh, if you sign up for the workbook, you'll get a little bit of a preview and some more information via email. So uh, head over to howibuilt.it slash liftoff if you are interested in starting a podcast of your own. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I know that there's a lot of things that are uh, pulling for your time. And the fact that you're willing to spend 30 to 40 minutes with me every week uh, is something that I deeply appreciate. So thank you again. And until next time, get out there and build something.